Welcome to Had a Magical Day, the podcast about Disney parks that's like taking a vacation in the middle of your day. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Had a Magical Day. I'm your host, Scott Otto. Thank you for listening, and if you could, please uh, like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. And also, um, if you want to reach out and give us some feedback or just some ideas for future shows, or you want to be on the show, send us an email at info at hadamagicalday.com. All right, before we get started, we like to start off with some uh, Disney news. So here's the latest Disney news for the last week of April 2022. So Walt Disney World, the big news there, of course, is uh, legislation passed in Florida to revoke the a special district that was created for the creation of Walt Disney World. So if you're not familiar with this, um, it's called the Reedy Creek Improvement District. It's what's known as an independent special district. So basically, it just gave Disney autonomy over the, all the land that it owned and the ability to run it like its own little city. So it manages all the roads. It has its own fire departments and uh, security and everything else that you would need in a city. Why did they do that? Well, they did that because Disney had expressed some dissatisfaction with the recent law passed in Florida. We don't need to get into the politics of it all. The question is, like, how does this affect you and your experience at Disney World? Well, it shouldn't really at all, certainly not now. The law doesn't go into effect until June 1st of uh, 2023, so there'll be no changes to Disney uh, in the short term and maybe not even in a year. Uh, a lot of people think this is maybe just a lot of political theater and the, uh, the law can be repealed and things can go back to the way they are without ever actually changing. So we'll see what happens. I wouldn't worry too much about it, but that has been uh, big in the news this past week. Uh, on more uh, fun news, we should say, for Walt Disney, um, in the last episode, we mentioned the Traveler's Cafe, which is where the Starbucks was in Epcot, was closed to make way for the new Connections Cafe, which is part of this new renovation in Epcot. Well, this past week, they announced uh, when it will actually open. So the Connection Cafe will open April 27th. Also, uh, Disney's Magnolia Golf Course in Walt Disney World is closing uh, the front nine, holes one through nine, April 28th to May 8th. So if you're planning on going golfing there, you're going to only have to golf on the, on the back nine. Also for Disney World and Disneyland, I think I mentioned in the last episode that all the masking restrictions had been lifted except for on transportation. However, due to a recent uh, federal ruling, uh, they are now eliminating that as well. So masks are optional everywhere in Disney World now. You do not have to wear a mask. It's up to you whether you do or not. That's at Disney World and Disneyland. All right, and Disneyland news, they've started to, they, I think we mentioned a while ago, they started to bring back a lot of the nighttime shows. And one of the favorites in Disneyland is this Main Street Electrical Parade. Well, last week, they just announced some special limited edition souvenirs for the Main Street Electrical Parade. And, you know, they did this in Disney World with uh, Figment, the Imagination, the popcorn buckets, and it was just a mania of people trying to get these buckets. So for these Main Street Electrical Parade uh, souvenirs, they're limiting it to two per customer. So hopefully it won't be so crazy and hopefully everybody gets a fair chance of getting that. Um, some of the things they have is they have a light up turtle slipper, which is based on the turtle in the parade, a light up Elliot Dragon popcorn bucket. And apparently there might also be uh, something called the 
Main Street Electrical Parade light bulb slipper, whatever that is. Okay, also in Disneyland, uh, they announced the Paradise Pier Hotel is being rethemed to Toy Story. Not a lot of details yet. They just kind of announced it. So, but that could be really cool, especially if you kids who love the Toy Story movies. And they're also retheming Tarzan's Treehouse. Uh, this formerly had been the Swiss Family Treehouse, just like in Disney World, uh, which was created in 1962. But in 1999, they gave it a Tarzan theme based on the Tarzan animated movie that they had. And now they're going to retheme it to something else, although they haven't announced what the theme is going to be. So that is it for our news. Also, I should mention that this episode will be released as a video on our YouTube channel. Our channel has had a magical day. We'll be having a lot of photos that we will display in the video during the podcast. You won't miss anything by listening to the podcast, but if you want to see the photos, there's a lot of cool photos. You can go to the YouTube channel and check them out. And uh, let's get on to the regular part of the show. And this week, we'll be talking to Dave DeCaro, who is an artist and photographer and a Disney historian and also the owner of DaveLandWeb.com. Uh, if you've listened to the last couple of episodes, we talked a little bit about it. Um, and I want to spell it out slowly this time, because last time I spelled it out too fast and the V and the E kind of ran together. So it's Dave, like the person's name, D-A-V-E, and it's Land, L-A-N-D. So it's like Disneyland, except it's Dave Land, and then it's Web.com. So it's DaveLandWeb, all one word, dot com. A lot of cool photos of Disneyland and Disney World, some that are archival and some that Dave took. And then there's also his own art there that's really cool and his own photography. There's also a link to his blog, which is really interesting look at uh, kind of pop culture through the 20th century. So without uh, further ado, let's welcome our guest, Dave DeCaro. Dave, thank you for doing the show. Thanks for inviting me, Scott. I appreciate it. I'm glad you could make it. So give us a little bit about your background. You're obviously very artistic. You do painting, you do photography, and then you do some, some other stuff. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into art and how you knew that that was what your career was going to be. I remember probably going back to maybe age four or five, just you know, scribbling like anybody else. Um, my grandmother was an artist, so she really supported that, would always have pads of paper for me when I go to visit. And I would copy what I had in other books. And as a kid, um, I had a lot of Disney storybooks. There was a, it was kind of like an encyclopedia set, I think, with all the Disney stories and everything. So I was raised on that. Uh -huh. Back in those days, the Disney movies would only come out every seven years. So if you wanted to see a Disney movie, you couldn't see it on TV. You, Snow White would be in the theater every seven years. And if you missed it, you'd have to wait another seven. So both my dad and my mom, especially my dad, were really good about making sure that there was a Disney movie come to the local theater that I would go to it. And then there was, uh, was the Art of, Art of Disney. I think it was by Christopher Finch. Mm -hmm. That came out around 71, I think. That was like a huge, huge book like a an art book that covered all things disney including the parks and that thing was like my bible because it had all kinds of rare pictures and so that was inspirational so disney really flavored my my early years and it just kind of mm -hmm. stuck with me i did not take art in college i did not want to go to an art school i wanted to have 
I don't want to use the word normal, but a more well-rounded <laughs> college experience. Mm -hmm. So I was a telecom major with an advertising concentration. I knew I wanted to do graphic design, so I got kind of a background on the marketing, the advertising end, and that's what I've done professionally. So the the painting and the photography and all that's just kind of a, a hobby and a side thing, which means that I can enjoy it and I don't have to do weddings and <laughs> all the other stuff that people have to take to pay the bills. Oh, that's nice. That's a good way to do it. So tell us how you kind of developed this DaveLandWeb.com. Like, how'd you start collecting all these images of Disneyland and Disney World? It was around my uh, 40th birthday, I went to Disneyland. That was part of my celebration. And typically before that, you know, before I moved back to California, I would go to Disneyland maybe every three to five years. Um, it was kind of a special thing. And then when I got to California, it was a little bit more often because it was closer for me. And my best friend at the time had never been to Disneyland or Disney World. And he was my age, you know, in his 40s. And he just fell in love with it and wanted to go all the time. <laughs> so we went a lot. And then, uh, you know, to try to make it a little bit more exciting for me, too. I don't remember why, how I searched, but I did a search for old images and I came up with a blog. Um, I don't think the guy updates it anymore. It's matterhorn59.blogspot.com, I think, mm -hmm. Patrick. Uh, that was like a complete rabbit hole. He had so many amazing color and black and white images of the park when it was being built. Early attractions I'd never heard of. And then I stumbled onto another blog, which was really cool too and this this one um david eppen he still updates his it's gorillas don't blog blogspot.com <laughs> and he you know, he puts a lot of funny commentary with his images but he gets a lot of really rare images and um so i thought oh well it would be cool to have a few of those old images you know maybe i could find a few <laughs> so i went on to ebay <laughs> and you know the rest is history i just got stuck and then i would Get these batches of slides, which I'm sure someone got for pennies from an estate. And there would be a few ones I'd be like, what the heck is that? So I would just put them on my blog and be like, you know, I have no idea what this is. And then, you know, some brainiac with a lot more knowledge than I had would chime in, came up with a website. I already had the website and I thought, oh, I'll have a Disneyland page. So I put all these onto one page and then it started getting full. So then I had it divided to land. Then it became attraction. Some pages, you know, it's according to decade because there were so many images. It just kind of became like a runaway train. And the people I've met through it and the information I've gotten over the years has also been incredible. Yeah, it's, I mean, people haven't been to the site. It's huge. It's just, yeah, and you have it alphabetical as well. So you can kind of go that way to, to find all the different images. And the thing I only realized recently as I was, you know, checking out your, your pictures is that quite often in different sections, you also have some really cool background and some stories about that, different, different rides. I don't update as, as much anymore. I'm just not as involved in that. Um, I kind of got to a point where there's only so many pictures of the castle you can collect and things like <laughs> that. So unless I really see something cool and I've kind of gone back to some other interests. I kind of got burned out on the Disney thing, but when I was going to the park steadily, um, some of the people like Bob Gurr that I would meet, or I met um, 
Right. Oh, shoot. Don DeFore's family. His, his two sons. Don DeFore ran a restaurant at Adventureland in the early years called the Silver Banjo Barbecue. It's an area that back then they called it New Orleans Street mm-hmm. because this was before New Orleans Square. He is the only, even to this day, I think the only person whose name, a real person's name was used in a franchise, not a franchise, but in a restaurant in the park. Known as Don uh, DeForest Silver Banjo Barbecue. And it was there from maybe like 56, 57 until I think around 1960, which is when Walt started kind of taking things back himself. Mm-hmm. In the early days, he was just trying to fill up space. And so he would lease things out to, you know, Fritos or other places like that, which saved him some money, helped him build other things. But the Silver Banjo Barbecue was so interesting to meet his sons, hear that story, how he came up with a recipe for the barbecue sauce. And Don DeFore um, is best known today as playing the father on the TV show, Hazel, which was big back in the 60s. Oh yeah, I remember seeing it in reruns. Yes, he was the dad, okay. He and Walt met through, I think it was, was it the Emmys, I think? And somehow got to know each other and Walt was impressed with some of the things that Don had done at the Emmys and they brainstormed on coming up with this restaurant within the park. So that, you know, it's harder and harder as the years go by to meet people that actually were there. Right. (laughs) But I was very fortunate that I've met quite a few uh, through my years and taken their stories down. Or people contacted me. They've written me that, uh, you know, my dad or my aunt or my uncle worked at the park. And I'm like, hey, you know, if you wouldn't mind sharing your story, some people do. And they share incredible stories and pictures and others you never hear from again. But that's where most of those stories came from, hmm. my site. Yeah, there's some really cool stories there. Um, so it's interesting you mentioned that, like in the early days of Disneyland, like you said, they, you know, Walt had a lot of money coming in from ABC that was going towards the park, but he was very conscious about the money. And yep. so like you said, farmed out a lot of the vendors, a lot of the vendors were all, you know, like you said, Frito-Lay and other folks. And even a lot of the rides were sponsored and that continued well into the 60s and even longer where they had sponsors for different rides, uh, like clearly like in the World's Fair and it continued afterwards, like GE did the Carousel of Progress, so Pepsi yeah. was... Uh, it's he a knew how to work it. Yeah. But he still kept control over the concept. He was really good about that. But yeah, I mean, without those franchises, Disneyland would have happened. Tomorrowland, that was a complete franchise land. Ever you had... Um, what was the aluminum place? Some aluminum company sponsored an attraction. You had Monsanto mm-hmm. sponsored a number, you know, evil Monsanto sponsored a number <laughs> of uh, attractions at Disneyland. Um, the paint company uh, was a Dutch boy. They had I mean, all these different things in Tomorrowland were basically as for these companies, they had a crane plumbing had the bathroom of tomorrow in there. <laughs> I mean, it was a real stretch, but otherwise couldn't have had Tomorrowland because he, he ran out of money. That was the last land. Yeah, talk to, talk a little bit about Tomorrowland because like when the park first opened, there really wasn't much in Tomorrowland. Oh, right? it was, uh, wasn't a whole lot that was really tomorrow about it. It was, you had the, um, all the sets from the 20,000 leagues under the sea that made one exhibit. So people could do a walkthrough exhibit where they would see the squid Mm-hmm. They could see Captain Nemo's um, 
of his bedroom or whatever in the organ, which that's the most famous thing that the organ ended up in the haunted mansion. Uh, so when you ride through the ballroom, you're seeing the actual organ that was used in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1950s. Yeah, it's the one with Kirk Douglas and uh, yeah. James Mason as the classic. So, you know, he stretched his dollar there. Uh, when you walked in, you would see the, uh, I think it was, it was the Hall of Chemistry, mm -hmm. which was kind of an ad for slightly into the future, you know, things that were <laughs> possible. You had the uh, Circorama, which was an interesting, that 3D, you could stand in the middle of the room and see a, uh, a screen surrounded you all the way and feel like you were in the middle of a movie. Uh, but yeah, was well, that the first of one of those? Because those became like popular later on. Let's see them at carnivals and things. But that was probably the first one. Or there was there's one in Williamsburg that might be older. I th mm -hmm. I think it, you know it became popular around the same time. But yeah, that that's about the time that those things, the travelogs. Um, I don't even know if the technology exists to show that stuff the way it was shot anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they probably don't have many of those cameras around. Yeah, well, it was basically, I think they jerry-rigged it together on top of a station wagon where there were like, you know, four or five cameras that would film the stuff as you're driving around. <laughs> uh, now, in, I think, in 59, when they kind of had a revamp of Disneyland, they really filled out Tomorrowland. That was, that was a huge year. That was almost as big as the opening year. Mm -hmm. That was the monorail, the submarine voyage, the Matterhorn. I think the motorboat cruise might have been revamped. It had been around before that, but mm. yeah, big attractions that are all still there today. You know, the submarine voyage has been rethemed, but it's still going. Right. Yeah, it's now Nemo, right? It's a, I think oh, it's a... Don't get me started <laughs> on that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's almost the way you described when you started listed off it's almost like the year of bob gurr right because you mentioned matterhorn and the monorail he was very big in those so when you talk to him did you i mean that's usually a topic that comes up what do you have any good bob gurr stories from talking to him one of the times i was seated next to him was right about the time that they were doing a new line of the monorail hmm. um and he was telling me the horror stories about how you know, they were dealing with this. I think it was a Canadian company. Nobody contacted him. They just started from scratch. They're holding it. Well, they didn't take into account some of the stuff on the tracks. Um, so, I mean, they had these cars that came to the park and they didn't fit. Um, there was no air conditioning on them. The windows didn't work. And they did eventually consult him, but he had to basically help him retrofit those things so that they could actually work. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and he was talking about the, uh, the Utopia cars and the Viewliner, you know, how he put that together. The Viewliner was the predecessor to the monorail. And, uh, he was just a real, a brilliant go-to guy. Walt pretty much said, you know, this is what I want, make it happen. He was the go-to guy. He, Walt let him build a little garage to, you know, fix all these things. And I think it was the monorail he said that thing was on fire uh, <laughs> on its maiden voyage you know they had to put that out and but you know the, the guests never really saw that stuff and i thought i heard a story one time was it before nixon rode on the monorail 
like they still hadn't really got it working right <laughs> they were just kind of hoping that was when i think they, they had a little fire or something yeah. so um interestingly enough i got to meet julie nixon eisenhower who was there that day that was on the christening it was nixon and his wife and his two daughters were there for the ribbon cutting um you know when you hear bob Gurr tell it it's a little more dramatic a little more funny uh -huh. julie said you know she didn't really remember it that way as far as she was you know because the the story he likes to tell is about how i think the secret service were all upset because the monorail took off without them and they hadn't and nixon was on there but you know back then it wasn't that big of a deal for that kind of a thing mm -hmm. but nixon and uh and walt were very 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 good friends and uh Julie said that she and Walt's daughter, Diane, would often talk about how it was difficult to read what the public would write about their parents, knowing the real story and the real people and dealing with that, you know, so they had that in common. But Julie had nothing but amazing memories of Walt and how good he was to them. She let me photograph a book that the Disney Corporation made for her mm -hmm. with a bunch of photos because their family would go there almost every year. They were originally from Orange County. So whenever she and her family would come back, they would basically go to Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm. But in that, there was some correspondence between uh, her dad and Walt. So she let me photograph that. And I, I may have some of that on my website too. So I, I came across a story, I think I mentioned to you earlier today, that, that one time you, where you know so much about Disney and particularly Disneyland that you were brought in to uh, teach a little history of Disneyland to actually park employees at Disneyland. How did that come about? I got to know, I think it was through Dean Baladad, who was in the, uh, the tour guide program. Um, he's known as Disney Dean. He is an incredible wealth of knowledge, just the nicest guy you could ever want to meet. And I met him through my website and frequent trips to the park. You know, I would get people reaching out to me and met him a few times. And he ran kind of an um, employee thing where they would do little presentations at the, uh, what are they called, the team Disney building at Anaheim or whatever, I think. The one that's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like right behind Toontown is where it's located. The one that you pass by on the five, the one that with the iridescent. Mm -hmm. So he was in charge of some of these presentations um, for their little employee club where he would bring in speakers and things. And he asked me if I would do a presentation, they had a bunch of female employees that had worked there during the 60s. I think the, the name of it was something like uh, Ladies of the 60s. They had one lady that had been the, um, the ambassador. And they still do that, I think, where they have the ambassador. They like, still have Every year, don't they have a male and a female, I think? They have several now. Okay. Um, yeah, because I just saw something, I think, on the D23 website where they had like five new ambassadors. Yeah. They had one that had been an ambassador. They had um, women that had work, worked in the park during that time. So what they wanted me to do was kind of set the tone with my pictures and background on what the park was like in the 60s. And then they did a panel thing where these ladies talked and, oh my gosh, that was one of the most amazing experiences to hear these women talk, not only to hear their history about Disneyland, but just the time period. One mm -hmm. of the favorite stories and I tell this often is one of the ladies had worked on the Matterhorn and she would tell me that it was a fairly common practice where parents would get in line and when they would come up to the cast member right before they got on the attraction on the Matterhorn 
they would hand the baby off to the cast member or their little kid and say, <laughs> you know, we'll pick it up when the ride's done. I mean, can you imagine doing that today? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and Walt's policies that, was it after sundown or after dark, women could not work at the front gate. Um, you know, that oh, really? was kind of a gentlemanly thing looking out for them. Hmm on for instance like snow white or any of the attractions a female could not be a lead let's say the lead was a male and he was out sick even if the female that was working there had been there for years knew the track attraction they would call a male from somewhere else even if he didn't know anything about it to have him work <laughs> as the lead uh -huh. which was you know when you could hear a little bit of their frustration they would still basically be acting as the lead because they would be answering the questions and doing everything, but you would have to have a male who would do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the talk about the dress code and makeup and all that kind of stuff. And some of these women actually would see Walt in the park, talk about him. You know, he would come up and say hello to them. It's fascinating, fascinating evening to hear them talk about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds it. Yeah, he was in the park fairly often, wasn't he? In Disneyland? He was very hands-on. He had the little apartment above the, the fire department. Right. Which is why they have that lamp there now. That's a, The employees would know if Walt was in the park because the light would be on at night. So now they keep it on as a tribute to him. Yeah. And that part, or the, uh, the apartment, if you ever get to go inside of it, is a true testament to what a humble man he was. Small little nothing apartment. Mm. Um didn't really have a bedroom it was the living room and they had the couches that would turn and convert into beds the bathroom was a small little smaller than your typical hotel bathroom didn't really have a kitchen kind of had a little sink and a little kitchenette area it's just tiny tiny but he didn't really need a lot he just yeah. wanted to be there for when the park opened and to walk around and talk to people and get their opinion and very hands-on yeah well is that you know level of caring and that level of detail you know that really makes the park great his brother was the financial person he was the creative and they were a great partnership yeah they certainly were so you know speaking of the history you, you know so much about these different things well, let's talk about like some of your favorite things and maybe we can show some of your photos while, while we're talking about so for, for people listening to the podcast also going to release this on our youtube channel and so you can see uh, dave's uh, photos so Dave, take us, you want to do the viewliner first? You want to tell, talk us about sure. that? Because it's something like people don't really hear a lot about. That'd be interesting. I know I've seen it on your blog too, I believe. Yeah. Few people know about the viewliner. It was only, I think it may have the record of being the shortest living attraction at the park. It, uh, it debuted in, it was 57. And Walt wanted, I think he saw a thing, it was called the Aero Train, which was kind of a sleek, train that was uh debuted at the uh, chicago there was some kind of chicago train or powertrain show and he saw it and he wanted something like that in the park he was really big into the futuristic transportation so he had bob gurr do it and if you look at pictures of the aero train which are on my site and then you compare it to what the viewliner were very very similar uh, the viewliner was not really high-tech interior it looked kind of sleek but it was also very tiny if you look at pictures of people in there it almost looks like they're in a miniature vehicle 
Very small, yep. So that picture is from the Powerama show, which is what the Viewliner was based on. And you can even buy model trains now. They sell them of this uh, aero train. Viewliner almost looks like a toy train. And it ran on train tracks. So it ran kind of parallel for the most part to the Disneyland Railroad, but the route was between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. It only had two stations. So it just kind of did like a, a little circle. Mm -hmm. so, so, they had, so they had two trains running at the same time there for a little bit. Yeah, it was uh, the Fantasyland Viewliner and I forget what the names for them were and then the Tomorrowland. So here's Walt with a, and it kind of gives you, you know, here's a little boy He's almost as tall as the entire train. <laughs> and you can see it's on the train tracks. At that time, it looked futuristic, but I wouldn't say that the mechanics of it. I, I, I think I remember Bob Greer telling me it wasn't really stable. <laughs> so, but it was basically train technology of the time. It wasn't Correct. Really. With, it, with it just a different shell. So just so for this quick sec second, we have a picture here of the... Uh, view liner next to the train like you were just saying the two tracks kind of running in parallel which the train if i remember correctly is at five eight scale mm. to what a real train was so you think you know here the railroad or the regular train is five eights and the view liner is even shorter than that it's really tiny it um, is it's pretty small <laughs> i'm sure it didn't have air conditioning so as you can see the windows are all open it must have been pretty steamy in there uh, during the day, but yeah, it was you know it's inter interesting to see pictures of the two of them side by side to where the trains actually ran parallel. Yeah, that's no, a cute, a cool uh, shot, and like you said, you do see the the difference in scale there. You know, that's not a great shot, but it shows the Viewliner station in Tomorrowland. Uh, okay, so that's what that is. And what's the uh, the thing in the background? The rocket that is the rocket to the moon attraction. So there's a I think it's still there, a miniature version of it that Coke sponsored. Mm. Uh, it was called the Moonliner. So that was a model of a rocket ship. Space travel was still futuristic back then. And then you would enter into a attraction building behind that rocket called, uh, it's a rocket to the moon originally, I think, where you would sit in an auditorium. It mm. was shaped round. And the premise was that you were on a spaceship and you'd see this movie that would show the rocket ship taking off. So you would feel like you were taking a, a trip to the moon. So that was a huge attraction. And then they rethemed it to Mission to Mars. Uh, okay, that's when I, yeah, that's when I started going to the park. So that, that, yeah, that's, that's the same attraction. They did dismantle that. Um, so the one that's there now is a smaller replica of it. This mm -hmm. is right outside of what is Space Mountain, I think. Mm -hmm. Yep. So this one, I thought I saw something online recently about it. Like they actually built it like to spec as a rocket. Like it was very much made by rocket people in terms of obviously it doesn't have the fuel and all the inner yeah. work, of it, but the outer casing is, is the same. That was something that Walt, he was really, really interested in technology. And so he was, he was talking to like top-notch scientists at the time that would act as consultants for these attractions, you know, like the rocket to the moon attraction for the uh, Moonliner. Uh, he was talking to these people, getting this, what I would call truly at that time, futuristic information. Mm -hmm. Don't know that they really, I don't know in the parts that there's anything really cutting edge anymore. 
to where they would talk to leading scientists or. Right. Yeah. It was kind of always a disappointment to me in Epcot because I always thought that would kind of be like that. They'd always it be on the train. It's supposed to be right, but it never. Yeah, they wussed out at the last minute when Walt died. Yeah, that would have been an incredible thing if his original vision had been carried out. Yeah, exactly. Um, on this, uh, it, it, interesting. I think it was a kind of a two-way street between him and the rocket scientists because I believe at some point in the late fifties, right, they had some incidents and they were running kind of behind schedule and. People were kind of losing faith with the space program and they brought in Walt because they were going to have Walt do some, I think, documentaries or whatever to help kind of boost people's interest in the space program and keep it going. So I think he he had a fairly close relationship with uh, Werner von Braun. Or, Werner, Werner von Braun. Yeah, that, that's the guy. I think I have a picture of them looking at a rocket at some place on my website, too. Mm. But yeah, and he had close ties to the government too. He did a lot of films during the war, World War II. Okay, so now there's the, um, that's the Fantasyland station, I believe. Is that right? No, 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 that's Tomorrowland. Um, and you can see the motorboat cruise attraction right below it. Oh, right. Yep. This this is cool. Let me get the year just for. Sure. You scroll up to this. So it was June 57 and it closed down barely a year after that. Wow, that was sure. And you said that was like the shortest ride in history in, in terms of it's, length. It's, if it's not, it's pretty close. And yeah, so, you know, Gurr was talking, the Viewliner's passenger cars were built by outside vendors while Gurr built the engines using Oldsmobile Rocket V8 gasoline engines and the parts from two 54 Oldsmobiles. And Gurr was, was still, yeah, Gurr was still putting out fires literally the morning of the Viewliner premiere. For the inaugural trip, the band played while Walt jumped in the engine and drove off with Gurr in a new uniform sewn together the night before. People don't realize just kind of how shoestring some of the stuff at Disneyland was back then. Yeah, like for really for the first, you know, four years or so, right? Yeah, it was kind of common. Like people think like Disney has Imagineers and they build everything, but a lot of the stuff was outsourced. Like Disney will design something, but they'll outsource it. Yeah. Like, you know, especially all those motor vehicles and all these transport systems. Quite often on the patents, there are these other companies uh, listed on, on the patents who help build them. Right? Yeah, so like Sam Kim, the Imagineer, would have done the concept, but then someone else would have. But the fact that Bob did the the guts, the interior work, is that's so interesting to me. The guy was a gene is a genius. So Walt was not really impressed by that. I, it wasn't quite what he wanted, and then he saw. Um, what was it in Switzerland or someplace? He saw what the monorail was. He's like, yes. that's what I want. So the view liner was no more. And that's where the whole monorail, he really wanted a transportation system, which is what was going to lead into Epcot, you know, having these futuristic transportation systems, the people mover. But the monorail was the first one where he really got his dream come true, where you could have, you know, the single beam, the futuristic thing, traveling, taking people from the hotel. I mean, originally, the monorail would let you right off at the Disneyland Hotel. Of course, that whole configuration has changed over the years. The hotel has completely been torn down and rebuilt. So you can't quite get the feel of what it was. But it was a transportation system. And then the people mover, which the tracks are still there, but I think you only have it at Disney World now. That was a system where, you know, this thing keeps moving, but mm -hmm. it's slow enough pace 
that you can get on and off while it's moving. And that was going to be his transportation concept for Epcot. And was that developed as part of the World's Fair, the, the People Mover? Or I believe it was. That was the same. Uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff. Was it the uh, Mr. Lincoln, Small yes. World? Mr. Lincoln, Small World, Carousel of Progress. And then they had kind of the, the car ride, like through the prehistoric. The, the Ford uh, Futurama car would take you through what is now the um, Grand Canyon diorama in the primeval world. Yeah, so, so you can see that on the train ride now, right? At Disneyland, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, he was pumping the stuff out. <laughs> and Raleigh Crump was heavily involved in that one too. The, um, there was that big sculpture, the, uh, was it the four winds or something? Some kind of, yeah, a, the, was it the clock of the four winds or tower something? of the four winds? Maybe something like yeah, something, that. Something of the four winds. Yeah. I mean, you look at it and it screams Raleigh, Raleigh Crump, just like small world, you know, Mary Blair gets a lot of credit for that, but Raleigh was kind of the one that brought that one home. Mm -hmm. He made that thing happen. Typically with Mary Blair, she would do a lot of sketches, but it was someone else that would have to complete it for her. Mm. And Raleigh, that's got a lot of Raleigh Crump in it. That guy's a genius too. And he's on his fingerprints on on everything pretty much, especially those he early was The early uh, Haunted Mansion. Yeah. I mean, had Walt lived, that might've been a little different than what it is now too. There's still a few little Raleigh Crump touches that survived, but it was gonna be the Museum of the Weird. Yes. The Raleigh it was, Crump. It was him and another, Imagineer, weren't they working on the? Uh, I think he he was doing his own thing. Yeah, <laughs> and then there were maybe one or two other Imagineers that were doing their concepts. But um, there's one chair when you first get on the Dune buggies and you come up the hill, and where the um, knight in shining armor that with a endless hallway. Yes, with the with a, with a candelabra. candelabra. So on the left, there's a chair that looks really wacky that is a raleigh crump design that's one of the only things that survived the original museum of the weird concept i mean he had all kinds of things like dripping candle people and um really really off the charts but walt liked weird stuff but he knew in the end what was going to work commercially and what wouldn't but he he loved raleigh's vision yeah i think uh, there's a story on uh, Disney Plus, and I think I talked about it when we talked about the Haunted Mansion. I believe it was, it was Rolly Crump where he was working on all these scary effects for the, the Museum of the Weird or whatever, um, that apparently it would scare the people coming in at night to clean. Yes. And so they told them, they said, you know, please, you know, don't scare the, the help. And so they kind of took that as a challenge and they put stuff like on timers. And, and the next day, like the woman came and said, you're gonna have to clean your own your own office from now on. I think that person either quit or said they would never yeah. they were never coming back. Yeah. Because the I think the haunted mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean were supposed to initially be walkthroughs. Yes. But then when they put the pencil to the paper, they realized they could get not get enough people through there. Um, you know, you'd have bottlenecking. So that's when they came up. That was another um futuristic thing, that whole um Oh shoot! What's it called? Omni Mover. The Omni Mover. There you go. Which ended up being in the uh, the Tomorrowland attraction, the uh, 
Adventures Through Inner Space. Actually, that was first, I think. Adventures, that was, that was, that the, was first the first one with the Omnimover, uh, Omnimover, and then they used that in the Haunted Mansion. And the most interesting thing to me about it is how long that mansion was completed before it was open. I mean, it was up for years, the exterior, and it had the sign outside about the um, 99 ghosts, you can be the 100th. Um, in Savannah, Georgia, if you ever visit there, there's a bed and breakfast on one of the squares that the tour guides that take you around Savannah, they claim that that was the inspiration for the Haunted Mansion and that Walt use that but there's another place was it in Missouri or Mississippi or someplace that when you see that you you know it's it's the same thing uh-huh. uh, that they used as the concept so the exterior was done for years yeah I think it, I think they did it like 61 and yep. it didn't open till 69 those you know the Mark Davis sketches yeah so for uh, listeners this is the sketch of uh, a Viking those characters are still in the graveyard the singing characters and the uh like translucent yes pretty much any any kind of thing that makes you smile in the honda mansion is like a mark davis right sketch that comes to mark life. davis and who was the other um wasn't claude Coates. who was the other one that the two of them you, you can see the two different versions one was more of the yeah. scary haunted house and mark davis was more of the lighthearted. yes no claude Coates is the other the okay other um, they work together, but yeah, definitely you can see two different vibes. Yes, and it kind of worked out like the beginning part is more of the Cloud Coats, and then yes. the second half is more of the, the Mark Davis. Uh, the attic was kind of like the transition stage. And then, of course, the Hatbox Ghost. Um, the fact that they brought that back is so incredible because for years and years and years, you hear rumors about, oh, they're going to bring back the Hatbox Ghost. The Hatbox Ghost was there maybe a few months at the beginning of the attraction and there's only a handful of photos of it. It was removed because the effect didn't really work too well back then. Um, but yeah, then became... they, they had it working and then they didn't really account for the ambient light when they actually did the ride. And so the effect w wasn't working that great. But and... for years it became like a cult thing where there was a whole cult built around bringing back the Hatbox ghost and how long it was there and finding photos of it. And there might even be like a two second video clip, I think that surfaced of it years later. And I think Benicio del Toro, somebody was a Guillermo del Toro, someone was gonna be doing a movie on it. I don't think that ever got made. Oh, wow, that'd be interesting. Right around that time that Kevin Kidney and, uh, and Jody made like a model of it. And they sold it as merchandise at the park, which kind of got the rumors going that it was going to be coming back. And then a few years after that, it did finally come back. And the, the effect, you know, they pretty did a great job with it. Yeah, that was I I met uh, Imagineer Daniel Joseph, who was largely responsible for figuring out how to pull off the illusion. Last thing on the uh, hat box ghost was uh, that one I was so excited to see because when they brought the bride in, that mm -hmm. new bride, oh, that was horrendous. It just <laughs> totally ruined my buzz at that ride because it just didn't fit to have the video projection of a person. It just kind of took you out of the whole Mark Davis feel, but to get the Hatbox ghost in, it kind of gets you back into it quicker right before you get to the 
the graveyard. Yeah. I hope at some point they do something better with that constant. Right. Yeah. Just doesn't fit with the whole axe thing. And yeah. I mean, I know they're trying to tell a story and they're trying to tie like, why is this house haunted more or less, but. They yeah. get too involved in these convoluted stories. I mean, whenever I hear that, and I will not mention her name, but you know, she's trotting out a story of why they're doing something. Walt's whole concept, and I forget who it was that was telling me this, you know, like on the Pirates of the Caribbean, he wanted it to be like a cocktail party where you're taking the boat through and you hear these little conversations. You don't need a whole big overarching story about, you know, someone's dead aunt from a hundred years ago. But these little cocktails, every time you go through, you hear something different. You're catching these little bit of bits of conversation and seeing these little vignettes. And it makes you want to see it again because you can't see all of it at the first time. But now, you know, they try so hard to stick to these convoluted stories that no one cares about. No, it's not interesting. If you have to tell the story, it's it's not working. Yeah, it's better just to have a little piece. Let you let your let you fill it in with your imagination. You know the details. But now it's the whole thing about the dead sea captain and Constance and eight husbands, and they have the pictures are all. Oh my god, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> is it is it interesting? Does it catch your attention? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh, before I let you go, I, you want to talk a little bit about your art? I was checking it out. It's really cool. And you do commission and it's fairly reasonable price for original art, I think. So uh, you want to talk a little bit about your style of the art? I'd say my style is probably more photorealistic, but a little pop artish. You know, my influences, I love Norman Rockwell, his realistic style, but he's a storyteller with his paintings. Mm -hmm. But I love his style. I love Andy Warhol and the whole pop culture, Lichtenstein. So, um, God, is that? No, no, not Lichtenstein. Who's Roy? Um, yeah, Lichtenstein did like the the pop art. Right? Yeah, the pop. Okay, so I had the that. Dots. Right. He did a lot of dots, right? I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, and of course, the Disney animators. They were all artists. They do not get their due. But you look at some of those things from Sleeping Beauty and the backgrounds and the way that the animation worked with the backgrounds, that, mm. that stuff's art. Yes, absolutely. When I was talking to Dave Bossert, I was making that point that I think what made Disneyland work so well at the beginning, because the technology, like you were just saying, it wasn't that advanced. And those dark rides weren't much different from dark rides at carnivals, except Disney had the storytelling and the artists. You think about Claude Coates, who was involved in the actual Disney movies. He did those original painted backgrounds in right. Fantasyland. Wow. Um, I mean, it's just that stuff is, and I know people today, they don't give a crap about the history, but there was some real artistry there. It wasn't something that was plugged into a computer and printed out on a piece of paper. This stuff, we're talking paint. <laughs> paint and canvas and boards and all that kind of stuff. So you know, my, I like to do pop culture topics, whether it's classic movies. Um, sometimes I do landscapes, but I get really bored with those and, and buildings. I've got one that's been sitting on my easel for, I hate to say how long that I have not finished because I just get bored. But I like to do people. To me, that's really interesting to capture somebody. It's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Well, and I like bright colors. I was raised on the Wizard of Oz and Technicolor. So I love those bright, vibrant colors. Yeah, those, those paintings really pop. Um, yeah, so people, you should check it out. If you go to daveLandweb.com, there's a, a page for, for the art and you can see 
these portraits that he's talking about. I think the latest one was El Diablo. I believe I saw there. He had two different portraits from the movie. The last, last commission that I did was a gal sent me a picture of her, was it parents, I think, from the 1940s. And oh my gosh, I saw this vintage photo and it looked so vintage, the pose, the outfits, but she wanted the painting of it. So that was an honor to do that. Mm. That was uh, maybe a year or so ago that I did that. The El Diablos, those were cool too fun to do this has been awesome thank you for for coming on the show and thank you for having me scott thanks for letting us use your photos too on on the video so really appreciate it of course all right so uh, once again i want to thank our guest dave decaro and uh, we'll We'll see you real soon real soon